Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. We'll be reading from that verse all the way through chapter 3, verse 5. My name is Mike Lindstedt. If I've never met you, I serve as the family pastor here at the Field Church. Pastor Sam, who is our regular teaching pastor, is on a much-needed vacation. He'll be back soon. So you got me this week and next week, and then you'll have Pastor Sam again. And so I don't know if I should say I'm sorry or, or what, but I'm here. And we're going to do some study. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 17. Let's read the text, and then let's get into it. It says, But we, brothers, having been taken away from you for a short while, in face but not in heart, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not even you before our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our joy and glory. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we were pleased to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, just as it happened and as you know. For this reason, when I could endure no longer, I also sent to you to know about your faith, lest somehow the tempter has tempted you and our labor be in vain." 1 Thessalonians is a letter which expresses the familial love contained within the family of God, as you guys are all aware. The Apostle Paul stresses the fact that the Thessalonians are his brothers in the family of God, and by virtue of their faith in the gospel and their subsequent union to Jesus Christ, they enjoy a quality of relationship that is unavailable to the world. The phrases God, Jesus Christ, Lord, and brothers are used in some combination 85 times in just the 89 verses that are in this epistle. Throughout the letter, Paul bears his pastoral heart for these young believers who, despite their spiritual infancy, have become mature models to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This is to say that the believers in Thessalonica were an example of how The Spirit of God can work in the hearts of a people who are totally submitted to Jesus Christ. Just look at chapter 1, verse 3 with me for just a moment. Paul says three phrases here that really sum up the, the character of this church. He says, remembering, referring to his prayer life about them, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, there's phrase number one, and labor of love, there's phrase number two, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. These words work and labor and steadfastness, and the other words to which those words refer to, faith, love, and hope, this is what characterizes the Thessalonians. They are doing acts of service because of the doctrine, because of the faith that they have. They are laboring to the point of exhaustion because of the love that they have for Jesus Christ and for one another. And because of their faith and their love, they are willing to remain under pressure, which is the word steadfastness there. And that that willingness to remain under pressure is is forward-moving. Notice what it says, steadfastness of hope. They are looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. And so those phrases there characterize the Thessalonians for us. They love the Lord Jesus more than their own life. And Paul was sure of this. The evidence was there of their election. The concrete evidence of their salvation was all over this church. He had no misunderstandings about who they worshiped. And it stands in stark contrast to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, I, brothers, was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men, but as fleshly men, as infants in Christ. 
And so the Thessalonians were mature, even though they were just recently saved. And because of these characteristics, Paul, the pastor, had a heart that was knitted to these people. It was knitted dearly. We see this truth of his heart being knitted to this people expressed against the backdrop of satanic opposition to the family of God and to the ministry of the gospel. The family of God has been under assault ever since the Garden of Eden. It's been under assault by the ancient foe, Satan, the adversary and tempter of God's people, whose main objective is to hinder the work of the gospel so that the souls of men and women around the world can be eternally damned alongside his own. And out of his incredible love for the Thessalonians, the apostle Paul was in utter anguish over his concern that the tempter may have been successful in tempting the Thessalonians to depart from the faith. In our passage today, we will see the pastoral love of the apostle jealously raging against the hostile opposition of this ancient adversary of God's people, an opposition that affects all of you and believers all around the world today. I've titled today's sermon, The Pastor's Protection from the Tempter's Hostile Opposition. The Pastor's Protection from the Tempter's Hostile Opposition. I've divided the section into just three basic points. There's surely much more we could talk about and we could preach on in this section, but I thought it was fitting to bring out these three basic points. The pastor's longing for his people and the tempter's hindering in chapter two, verse 17 through 20. The people's need and the pastor's provision in chapter three, verses one through three. And the pastor's concern and the tempter's opportunity in chapter three, verses four through five. So let's start with the first point. The pastor's longing for his people and the tempter's hindering in chapter two, verses 17 through 20. Read with me. Verse 17 says, but we brothers, having been taken away from you for a short while in face, but not in heart. We'll stop right there. Again, I have to make mention of the term brothers, the term Adelphos, literally from the same womb. Paul uses it here to mean a member of the same religious community, but make no mistake about it. They are from the same womb. They have been born of the same spirit. They have been born of God. And this word, brothers, is used 20 times in 89 verses. The only other phrases that are used more are God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is significant. This is very significant, and we would pass right over it if we didn't do our study. It's significant because it reveals the deep connection that Paul had with these people, a connection that surpasses ethnic relation. And it's significant that Paul, an ex-Pharisee, is saying and using this term with these Gentile believers. You have to understand that as a Pharisee, Paul would have considered fellowshipping with Gentiles an absolute breach of Jewish custom. We're familiar with this. If we go to Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, the Judaizers in fact, charged the apostle Peter with this very thing. In Acts chapter 11, verse one through three, it says this. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and you ate with them. You see, these Judaizers were legalists. They were Pharisees, many of them. And Paul describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so just the fact that he uses this, this brotherly, this familial term, Adelphos, shows us that he has a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. And this is significant to you and me. This is definitely significant to you and me. The principle that the gospel breaks down the sinful dividing wall of hostility between all ethnicities and reveals the truth that all men are actually created equal in value and dignity before God and that none are superior than any other. It's relevant today where we have a secular culture saying that there exists a systemic racism inherent in the culture of, in the fabric of our culture. But yet we know that the gospel would say, even if that were true, the gospel could overcome it. Amen. This is why it matters to you and I. We have to understand 
that Paul would have been the most racist here. And yet he's not. Why is that? Because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. So the man who was once a Pharisee of Pharisees can now genuinely say, my brother. Which points us to a larger eternal reality that you and I and Paul and these Thessalonians are all a part of the family of God. In Luke chapter 8, verse 21, our Lord himself said, my mother and my brother are these who hear the word of God and do it. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, the apostle tells us, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, which means daddy, Abba, father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here's the key point. The spiritual family of believers are heirs of the kingdom of the beloved son, regardless of ethnicity. By faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are the heirs of eternal life and co-heirs with Christ in the Father's kingdom. Paul uses the term Adelphos extensively, and thus he shows his connection with the Thessalonians that was a result of a shared salvation purchased by our Lord. Going back then to verse 17, he says, but we brothers, having been taken away from you for a short while in face and not in heart, taken away from you, literally to means to leave as an orphan. Paul speaks of his distress that he felt for leaving his spiritual family defenseless, like orphans bereft of a father's care. Remember, Pastor Sam preached about how the apostles saw himself as their pastor, as their parent as well. And we see just by this phrase here, he, he has this deep distress that he's being ripped away from his children. He's, he's leaving them as orphans. Therefore, we can understand that he considered himself as their spiritual parent in the Lord. Their protection was Paul's utmost concern. He couldn't stand being separated from them. It drove him to a place of intense agony, similar to being a parent torn away from your child in a war-torn country. Just imagine for one second, your parent, you have multiple children, one child, it doesn't matter, and you're in the midst of a war-torn country. And the enemy comes and kicks down the doors to your house and rips you away from your children. You would be frantic. You would be frantic. You would be distraught. You would be restless. You would desperately try to, to, to secure your child's safety. Would you not? This is exactly how the apostle Paul feels. Let's turn to Acts 17 to see how this ripping away occurred. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. We'll, we'll just be sort of scathing over here, but the situation in Thessalonica is described for you in the first 10 verses. And Paul, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews in the, in the synagogue that Jesus was the Messiah. And sometimes he was more successful than others, but he knew that that was his mission. He needed to go proclaim Jesus as Messiah to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The Lord would give fruit as it is the Lord's prerogative to do. And of course, Paul knew that it was the likelihood that he would be um, brutally persecuted was very high. And we see that, do we not? In verse five, but the Jews becoming jealous taking along with them some wicked men from the marketplace and forming a mob, set the city in an uproar. What did the Jews do? They were jealous that the grace of God came onto the Gentiles. They went and hired thugs to create chaos. And then in the midst of the chaos, they were able to drag Jason. They looked for Paul, they couldn't find him. So they dragged Jason who is likely converted at this point, before the magistrates, and they charge him with a political charge. Look down at verse 7. 
The end of verse 6 says, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. That's a political charge. That is a political charge. And surely the Thessalonians, who enjoyed the benefits of being a free city that did not have a Roman garrison within their walls and the freedom to mint their own coinage, surely did not want to lose that status as a free city. So we've got to do something about these men who are saying there's another king, namely Jesus. We've got to get rid of them. It was a political charge and it worked. And verse 10 says, then the brothers who were likely just converted immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Okay. He goes down to Berea in verses 11 through 15. The same exact thing occurs as was his custom, goes to the synagogue, reasons daily from the scriptures with them that Jesus is Messiah. Some converts happen. Jews get jealous. They stir up a mob. They hire thugs. They create chaos. They drag them before the political courts. They throw the same charge at them. It's the same old story. They employed the same strategy. In verse 13, we can see this. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they came there as well, shaking up and disturbing the crowds. So we can go back to our text now, because this is what Paul's referring to. He's being ripped away from his children for being faithful to the Lord. This is significant. What does this tell us? What does this imply? Ministry does not go the way you think it's going to go. You may think, well, I'm doing everything God's telling me to do. I should be blessed. I have a question for you. Is your definition of blessing the same as the Lord's? because Paul was indeed more faithful than us if we want to measure it quantitatively. And yet he's being brutally persecuted, is he not? His desire was to stay with the Thessalonians, but he was forced out against his will and he had to keep moving. But no matter what, where Paul went, he was always faithful to the master's orders to proclaim the gospel, regardless of personal cost to him. And when the Lord made converts, Paul's heart was knitted to them. Paul's heart was knitted as a spiritual parent to his disciples. And so I ask you, do you view yourself in this way? You may not be a pastor. You may not be a deacon. You may not be in full-time ministry, but that's not really important. The Lord has called us all to ministry. It's just the American church that has professionalized that role. You're in ministry if you're a, if you're a Christian. Do you view yourself in that way? Do you see yourself with the responsibility of bringing up children in the Lord? Paul did. Paul's overarching objective in his life was to proclaim the gospel and make disciples and then disciple them as a parent would disciple their own children. What a high and lofty call. If you're considered, considering going into ministry, this is a non-negotiable. This is a non-negotiable. Your heart must be tender, must be soft. It must not shrink back and cower in the face of opposition, but it must be tender and soft towards those who are Christ's. So looking back then at chapter two, verse 17, we see that Paul's heart was clearly knitted to this people. He was bereaved of his spiritual children for a short time in face, but not in heart, as it says. And this is such a, an insight into the pastoral heart of the apostle Paul. It, it reveals that oneness, that unity that all Christians share, not just the pastor and the flock. All Christians share this. Literally, Paul is saying to them that the effective center of his being is connected with them. He was united to them in Christ. And truly, the distance did make the heart grow fonder. As we see in the latter half of verse 17, you can look at it. It says, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. He uses a superlative phrase, meaning literally more abundantly eager. Paul's desire basically cannot be adequately described with words. That's the point. That's the point. It's further than the upper limit. It's going past what is anticipated. And this is right. This is fitting for a pastor whose responsibility over his people is like that of a parent over their child. Paul truly is the ideal pastor. 
He had a tremendous capacity for people. His rapport with these people was astounding. His affinity for them was one that can only be found within the Christian family. His warmth and compassion for them was a supernatural one that comes from the indwelling spirit of God. You know, our Lord Jesus demonstrated this capacity for people during his earthly ministry. Matthew chapter nine, verse 35 and 36 tell us this. And Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Again, in Matthew 14, 14. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. The word translated compassion here means to be moved in the inward parts to the point of making a guttural sound. It's automatopoeic in that way. It's, it's, oh, literally. That's the type of compassion that the Lord had for his flock. And that's the type of compassion that the apostle Paul is referring to for the Thessalonians. And I say to you, that is the type of compassion that mature believers have for one another in the Lord. The key point is that this is what it means to have our hearts knitted to one another. This is what it sounds like. You know, first Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 through 27 says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Can you say that about yourself? You know, so often, so often we could really care less about what's going on in our brothers and sisters' lives. Do you hurt when they hurt? Do you grieve when they grieve? Do you rejoice when they rejoice? I mean, are you knitted to them as an arm is to the body, as the torso is to the head? If my arm gets cut off, the whole body suffers, right? This is what Christ is saying through, through the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. When one of our brothers and sisters is hurting financially and you have the ability to help them, do you even consider it? Do you consider it? When one of your brothers or sisters is in distress emotionally, maybe from a lost parent, from a lost child, from a, from a diagnosis, from the doctor, whatever the case, do you even think about reaching out and praying for them and calling them and spending time with them? Now, I can say before the Lord that this church does a phenomenal job of that. And I encourage you to excel still more every day. You guys rally around people that are hurting in this church. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. But if you're feeling convicted now, repent, repent. This is the standard. This is the high and lofty standard. We should be able to call God to the witness stand and say, my heart is knitted to my brother. This is very counterculture in America. We're so individualistic. We're so caught up and consumed in our busyness that we almost wear it like a badge of honor. And we don't realize that Christ is not concerned with how busy you are. Christ was way more busy than all of us. And yet he cared for people. He had compassion. He had compassion. And so we must repent. We must repent of the sinful selfishness because the world and its lusts that grip our hearts so often is all passing away. We must do as Philippians chapter two, verses three and four says, we should do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which also is in Christ Jesus. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Do you think that way? The apostle Paul did, and we should as well. And we should as well. Let's look back down at our text at the 18th verse. Because his heart was knitted to these people, these people's hearts, and so should ours be 
no matter the opposition that may come our way. Look at verse 18. He says, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Paul wanted to give these Thessalonians the best of what he had. He wanted to be with them. His great Christ-like love for them permeated every thought, every emotion, every desire that he had for them and their spiritual well-being. But you know what happens when you start to be like Christ and you start to desire to do the things of Christ? Opposition starts. Satan opposes you. Look at verse 18. Satan hindered us. Who is this Satan? Who is this Satan that hindered Paul? The Hebrew word for Satan basically means one who opposes. It is the adversary. In the immediate context here in, in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, they show us the earthly manifestation of this opposition in the Jews of Thessalonica. They are the ones who oppose Paul as far as he can see. But we know that there is a spiritual adversary. We know this. And this adversary works through physical means and physical people to accomplish his tyrannical goals. This is Satan. Every New Testament writer mentions this adversary. He's mentioned on 74 occasions in 19 New Testament books and an amazing 28 out of 30 references in the gospel involve either direct encounters with him or mentions of him. He is called many things. A few of the things he is called is the God and ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the angel of the bottomless pit, the prince of demons and the father of lies. He exhibits three basic characteristics, and this is very important. Make sure you're paying attention. He exhibits intellect, emotion, and will, which necessarily means then that he is an actual person and not simply a cosmic force. Satan exhibits the characteristics of personhood. Now, this may sound strange as to why I'm emphasizing this, but there is a huge movement in so-called Christianity and elsewhere that would really rather not have a personal Satan, that, that would rather just have a cosmic sort of force. But cosmic forces don't have intellect, emotion, and will. He's a person, and he is a created person. He's a spiritual being who possesses extraordinary power and extraordinary mobility. But his power is totally limited by the Almighty God. As Martin Luther said, the great reformer, Satan is God's Satan. And this adversary is the one, the spiritual person who is behind the physical persons who are opposing Paul and hindering the gospel ministry. And he hinders you. But how does he do it? Look back at verse 18. It says he hindered us. How does he hinder us? Well, that's a, a military term that, that the, the Apostle Paul, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is choosing to employ. That's a military term. It literally means to cut into a road by, by cutting a deep V-shaped uh, canal, if you will, or placing a large impediment that would detain an, a, an advancing force. That's the, Paul, that's the word, rather, that Paul uses to describe Satan's activity. Satan, in other words, has introduced an obstacle that stands sharply in the way of this, this train of gospel ministry that's embodied in the Apostle Paul. Paul is very simply saying that he desires to come to you, but Satan has blocked the road. Satan has blocked the road for a time being. Now, how else does Satan hinder people? How else does he hinder God's children? How else does he oppose the family of God? Well, number one, he comes against God's people when they're making advances in the kingdom. Nehemiah chapter four, verses seven through eight. It says, now it happened that when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the places broken down began to be closed, they were very angry. And all of the ancient enemies of God joined together to come and fight 
against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So Satan opposes God's people when they're making advances for the kingdom. Furthermore, he comes against the family members of believers. Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 12. Now it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. And Yahweh said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan answered Yahweh and said, does Job fear God without reason? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But send forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then Yahweh said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not set forth your hand toward him. And so Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. If you're familiar with the story, Satan works through means and through people to literally destroy Job's very profitable business and kill all of his offspring in one day. In one day, Job's life was flipped upside down. And the Lord was the one who put him forward. And Satan, because he is wicked in his heart and utterly depraved, desired to do those things to Job. And he did them. In one day, Satan's desire to prove that Job didn't love God and his faith was superficial was executed. And then in chapter two, verses four through eight, we see that Satan can also inflict believers with physical infirmities, pain, sickness, disease, as well as even mental infirmities. You know, we, we, we talk about mental health as if it's somehow like separate from the spiritual dimension. The Bible does no such thing. The Bible does no such thing. And we see this here in Job chapter two, verses four through eight. Satan answered Yahweh and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, send forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So Yahweh said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And Job took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Utter physical torment. And furthermore, in chapter three of Job, verse 11, Job said, why did I not die from the womb? Why did I come forth from the womb? It would be better to be dead. Mental anguish, depression, total depression. And you know who is the source of all these things? Satan, Satan. Another way that Satan hinders the work of God and the family of God is that he violently disturbs the life of the Lord's faithful ones. In Luke 22, verse 31, our Lord says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Satan has demanded before the throne of Yahweh to rattle your life to shake you harder than you can even comprehend. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, the apostle Paul writes, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. God hates pride. God hates pride. And a messenger of Satan was given to the apostle Paul to keep him from becoming prideful. Now, all of these examples, and there's many more, all of these examples that I showed you, they're all, we, also, we see in all of them that Satan is motivated by his desire to see believers walk away from the faith. He is motivated to see you, the sheep, walk away from the flock because you are easy pickings out there. No problem. 
for him at all. A sheep is utterly defenseless if the sheep is away from the flock. Do you understand that? And Satan is described as a lion roaming the earth, seeking someone to devour. Have you considered that? If you are in the family of God, you are on his list. Now, we should not fear him. We'll get to that later. But very few people think about this. And furthermore, Satan's goal can be summed up really like this. He wants to shake your trust in the Lord, particularly in the Lord's word. And he wants, you to, get you, he wants to get you to place your trust in him. That's what he did in the garden. And he has not stopped since then. Now, very few people consciously place their faith in Satan. There's very few true satanic worshipers, right? But... Do you know that anytime you lean on your own understanding and do not trust God and do not abide in the word of God, you demonstrate an allegiance to an idol. Jesus said that those who do the will of God are his family members, not those who just hear and take his advice. It's those who do the will of God that God himself says is the qualifying factor of whether or not you're in the family or out. Therefore, when you have ceased to trust his will, his written will, and do your own will, you show trust in satanically inspired methods of doing things. Now, how do we as Christians overcome such a creature as Satan? How, how is this possible? He's powerful. There's only one way, and it's through faith in the one who has already overcome him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. First John chapter five, verse four, for everything that has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the conquering that has overcome the world, our faith. First John chapter four, verse four, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. And our Lord says himself in John 16, verse 33, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage for I have overcome the world. Here's the point. It's only through Christ that Satan's efforts to stop the gospel message have been rendered ultimately powerless. And Satan's time of wreaking havoc on the world is short and he knows it and he will stop at nothing in his desperation to destroy the work of the gospel and to hinder the gospel of the kingdom and to get you to walk away from the faith. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. Now, back to our text in verses 18 through 20 of chapter two. Satan's against you. Do you understand that? He's against you. And if you are faithful to the Lord, there's a high probability that Satan will come after you. Paul understood this, and that's why his heart was under extreme duress. Look at verses 18 through 20. Again, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not even you before our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. His, his heart longed for his people and Satan made sure to focus his resources against Paul and hinder his ability to minister to them the gospel. But Paul would not be stopped. He would not be stopped. So he sent provisions to the Thessalonians. And that takes us to point number two, the people's need and the pastor's provision. The people's need and the pastor's provision in chapter three, verses one through three. Therefore, when we could endure no longer, we were pleased to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage your faith so that no one would be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined to this. Again, remember the background. 
After evangelizing in Thessalonica, Paul had been chased out of there to Berea. After evangelizing in Berea, Paul had been chased out of there to Athens. After being in Athens, Paul sends Timothy to the Thessalonians to strengthen and encourage them as to their faith so that nobody would be shaken. The people's greatest need during this satanic hindrance and onslaught was to have their faith built up. That was their biggest need, to be built up and edified in the faith. Because Satan wants to destroy the faith of a believer because it's a divine gift from God. The faith that we possess is a divine gift of God. The word pistis is the Greek word, and it involves belief, right? General belief, right? Like I believe that the sky is blue. Why? Because I see it, right? And we can get into the science as to why that is, but I believe it nonetheless. That's general belief, right? I can believe in the existence of a deity just by looking at rocks and trees and stars, but I certainly can't get to the gospel of Jesus Christ by looking at rocks and trees and stars, right? That's general revelation. I need special revelation. So this word faith involves that general belief, but it goes beyond human believing because it involves the personal revelation of the spirit of God working within you through the proclamation of the word of God. This is faith. Now, whenever you see in in the New Testament, uh, the definite article, your or their or my, the possessive article, as it relates to faith, What you're seeing here is a reference not to this general belief. What you're seeing there is a reference to the divinely given gift of faith. And the possessive article that's used is a possessive because when you receive a gift, it becomes yours. You did not generate it within yourself. You received it. God gives it to you. And guess what? He won't take it back. He won't take it back. Faith is always God's work, and therefore it is supernatural. Whereas just simple belief is a function of our created faculties, and therefore natural. Completely in a separate category. Our believing has eternal meaning when it becomes faith-believing. And that only happens by way of the transforming grace of God. Now, some of you might be going, wow, that seems like you're splitting hairs there. I don't know if I believe that. Why don't we go to James chapter one, verse 19. James chapter one, verse 19 says, you believe that God is one and you do well. James, the Hebrew, referring back to Deuteronomy chapter six, the Shema, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You believe that. Wonderful. You do well to believe that. Guess who also believes that? The demons. Categorical distinction there. James is saying, great, you have general belief. That's wonderful. That's great. But guess who also has that? Demons. And you know what they do? They shudder. They shudder. Demons believe and shudder because they do not have the divine gift that you, child of God, have called faith. They don't have that. So simple belief and faith are not exactly equivalent terms. Faith becomes yours when it's given to you. And when Jesus told people, for example, that your faith has made you well, that does not negate the reality that that faith was a divinely bestowed gift. And it became theirs when they made the possession or, 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 or the good confession. That was the evidence that they now possessed it. You see? Faith is always a work of God. It's purely his. And that's Paul's primary concern. Verse two, again, he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage that faith. The faith of the Thessalonians was a divine gift, but it still needed to be strengthened and encouraged. This is not a let go and let God kind of thing. That's not Christianity. The Lord says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Agonizo in the Greek. Strive to the point of agonizing. And the Thessalonians had that. Remember in chapter one, verse three, their labor of love. Literally, that, that word means laborious toil involving weariness and fatigue. I know uh, many of you felt like that after our last building day. I did. Laborious toil. But that's the Christian life. 
That's the Christian life. So Timothy is sent to buttress, to strengthen, to establish, to shore up the faith of the Thessalonians because their spiritual father, the apostle Paul, knew that his children needed to be solidly planted in what they believed about the Lord Jesus Christ. He understood the tendency for his spiritual children to vacillate in their understanding and their convictions. He made mention of this in Ephesians chapter four, verse 14, when he called the church there to no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness in deceitful scheming. So Paul sends their older brother, Timothy. Now, Timothy has, by this time, not really been a believer for very long. If you know his story, he was converted in Acts chapter 16. The Thessalonians show up in Acts chapter 17, right? But Paul trusted Timothy. His heart was knitted to Timothy. Timothy was Paul's protege, if you will. And he describes Timothy in the text of verse two here as, as our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. That's who he's going to send. He's going to send their older brother to build them up in the faith so that, as verse three says, no one would be shaken by these afflictions. Shaken's an interesting word here. It's only used in this one verse in the entire Bible. It literally means to wag the tail. It's an, illustri- it's an illustrious, uh, a term that illustrates the intensity with which these Thessalonians were going to be shook. It's like a dog wagging its tail. Y'all have dogs. Those things are... It's like a hummingbird's wings. Those things are flapping. Well, that's the word that Paul, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses to use. And it denotes a violent rocking of sorts and describes the intensity of the affliction. And now this word refers to afflictions as external to the individual as well as internal to the individual. It it, it really denotes pressure. That is like this, just constant friction being squeezed this way and rocked this way. That's the picture that the Greek puts forward here. They're not just being rocked in one direction. They're going all over the place. Chaos is always characteristic of what Satan does. And they are externally being pressured and internally being pressured. They're being confined and constricted without options. They're orphan children left to their own devices. And infants, what can they do but be dependent upon their parents? So the idea in this context is that Paul does not want the squeezing pressure of the serpent, Satan, to crush their firm convictions in the faith and cause them to violently vacillate in their commitment to Christ. Paul wants his spiritual children to grow up. He wants them to be like King David in Psalm 16, verse 8, as we read for our call to worship, which says this, I have set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This isn't self-will. This is faith. This is what true faith looks like. This is not just gripping, white knuckle gripping. This is Holy Spirit-inspired confidence in the Almighty God. David knew that Yahweh was his strength. He's at his right hand which is a Hebrew way of saying he is my source of strength. He is the energizing power behind my work as king. And he's my hope in time of struggle. Paul wanted to provide spiritual strength and encouragement to these young believers so that they would be firm in their faith because he knew the words of Isaiah chapter seven, verse nine. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. You know, I was a personal trainer at Pelican Athletic Club for years. And one of the things I told the kids that were training with me is you will never be stable until you become strong. And you will never become strong until you become stable. It works hand in hand. You have to work on stability before you can exercise maximal effort. It's no different with your faith. You must be planted and rooted deeply in your convictions about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are not, Satan knows that. He can see that. He can hear you when you speak. Understand and know this, Christian. Now, what does this necessitate? This necessitates you picking up your Bible and reading it and studying it and taking advantage of the resources 
that if you, if you have an iPhone, you are more wealthy than almost every human being on the planet that's ever come bef- from before you. You have access to incredible amounts of teaching. At this church, you get biblically faithful teaching throughout the week. My question to you is, are you taking it seriously? Are you still in la-la land? You don't realize you're in a spiritual war. I know, again, like I said earlier, many of you in this church are solid, solid. But as your pastor, along with the other pastors, we want you to excel still more, grow up into mature manhood, into spiritual maturity that is only found in a person who is nourished on the words of Christ. And you will become firm in your faith. Despite Satan's desire to create instability in your life, you will be firm. He wants you to vacillate. He wants you to be unsure. He wants you to be weak. He wants you to be fearful. But greater is the one who dwells within you than the one who dwells within the world. You have the written word that will nourish you. And you know, again, I'll use another gym reference. If you want to put on weight, if you want to put on muscle, you need to eat an excess of calories. If you want to grow spiritually, you know what you got to do in excess of? You got to read the word in excess. So that's my encouragement for you there. Because what you build your faith on will determine whether or not you stand firm in the Lord during trials. If you're building your faith on just listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and you never read the Bible, you are doing it wrong. If your faith is built on the presumption that life is just going to get easy for you once you come to Christ, you're building your faith on sand and not on the rock. If your faith is built on the presumption that Christ is going to make you healthy and wealthy once you come to him, you will fall away when the serpent begins to squeeze and take, as he did from Job, all that you idolize and hold dear. And you will find out that what you actually possessed was not the divine gift of faith, but what you actually possessed was natural belief that you mistook for the supernatural gift. Let me ask you a question. How robust is your doctrine of suffering? Paul says, look down at verse two and three. I want to strengthen you. I want to encourage you so that no one is shaken. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. How robust is your doctrine of suffering? Do you consider that true of your life? That you are destined for suffering at some point as a Christian. Now, by the grace of God, we don't experience like a like our brothers in Afghanistan do, like our brothers in India do, like our brothers in China do, like our brothers all around the world do. But make no mistake about it, that's by the grace of God. And God can do what he wants, when he wants, whenever he wills it. And that may be removed someday. We are approaching quickly in this country the reality that Christianity is being viewed as a terrorist threat. You know it. How robust is your doctrine of suffering? How robust is it when you're shut out of the economy, when you can't buy or sell because you are a Christian? Will you serve God then? Have you been taught rightly about the fact that you are now, right now, engulfed in a spiritual war with a powerful opponent? Do you even realize that's going on around you? Or I'll say it again. Are you still sleeping? Are you in la-la land? Wake up if you are. Wake up. Because Paul says to the Thessalonians, you yourselves know that we were destined for this. The Christian life is one of spiritual warfare. Paul taught this everywhere that he went. Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 22. When they, Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Paul said this right after he was basically stoned to death. You guys know the story. He's preaching the gospel. The Jews hate him for it. He gets stoned, literally falls on the ground, looks like he's dead. The brothers go out. They pray over him or something. They look at him. He just pops up and goes right back in and starts preaching the gospel again. This guy did not care about his life at all. In fact, he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, that for him to live, it was Christ. Do you realize this should be true of our lives as well? You know, 
I'm not saying this to make you second guess your salvation. Satan can't take that from you if you have it. He can't take it from you. But what he can do, he can render you utterly ineffective in the kingdom through sin. You see pastors all the time who fall from adulterous relationships. You see leadership in the church constantly. This happens all the time. What you don't see is what's going on in the membership, but it happens there just as often, if not more often, just by mere, uh, mere fact of the amount of people who are members of churches. So Satan can't take your salvation, but he can render you ineffective. And as we saw with Job, he can make your life utterly miserable. He can make you consider what Job's wife said to him, curse God and die. He can make you think that. So I encourage you, don't be lulled to sleep by the comforts of this world. Don't be lulled to sleep by the comforts of this world. Are you being strengthened by the word every day? Are you being strengthened in prayer every day? Are you eager to serve one another in love for Christ's sake? Does that characterize you? If it doesn't, you need to repent and you need to change. And let me tell you, you're not left to repent on your own. The grace of God is with you and the spirit of God is within you. He will do it, but you must repent. If you find yourself worrying about the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and all the things, just know this that those are the things that will choke out the life of the word of God in you. Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. Jesus explains the parable of the sower and he says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Is this you? If it is, you should be concerned about your spiritual state. You should take action and repent now and go on the offensive in the war. The apostle Paul understood this reality and he knew that his people needed to have their faith strengthened so that they could be effective in the war, so that they could be effective in their gospel ministry service. His primary concern was their faith. And that leads us to point number three, our final point, the pastor's concern and the tempter's opportunity in chapter three, verses four and five. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer just as it had happened. And as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to know about your faith, lest somehow the tempter has tempted you and our labor be in vain. Paul's concern as a faithful pastor and minister of the word of God was that the Thessalonians would be able Actually, his concern was that they would not be able to withstand the onslaught of Satan. They're too young, seemingly. They were just born. He was rightly concerned about them. And he did not want them to find out the hard way that the faith that they thought that they possessed was actually just the natural type of belief that all people have. He had executed his ministry faithfully. He kept telling them, verse 4 says, that they were going to suffer affliction. He prepared their heart by proclaiming the whole counsel of God to them. He didn't lie to his people about the realities of the spiritual war that they were in. They weren't given some cheap substitute for the gospel. They knew that Christ wasn't just their personal genie in a bottle that would just give them whatever they wanted. No, they had been given the true message of the gospel. And they knew that they needed to repent from worshiping idols and turn to worshiping Christ, which was the very thing that in 2 Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians, Paul commends them for. They knew who their newly acquired enemy was. They knew that this adversary, Satan, wanted to crush them because they no longer worshiped him. So Paul had to give them a robust doctrine of suffering so that they would be ready for the war. And he sent Timothy to reinforce their convictions. And no doubt, no doubt, Timothy encouraged them with the words that are recorded for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, where Paul said, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. 
Paul's concern was that the tempter was going to tempt the Thessalonians to leave the faith and return in their longing for the comforts and desires of this world, which, by the way, were plentiful in the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia and was the largest thriving metropolis in Paul's day other than the city of Corinth. So it's not like these guys are existing out in the middle of nowhere. They could, down the street, they've got the liquor store. Down the street, they've got the whatever. They've got temptations all around them. They're engulfed in it. They had opportunities to go back, just like the Israelites had opportunities to go back to Egypt. And just like you, every day, have an opportunity to turn from worshiping the Lord and turn back to worship of self, of idols, of money, of comfort, of ease, of anything other than the Lord God. So Paul says that he kept telling them in advance that they were going to suffer. And sure enough, the affliction came through the Jews, prompted by the evil desire of the adversary, Satan. Now I want you to turn before we close to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're almost done here. First Peter chapter four, verses 12 through 16. How is your doctrine of suffering? How robust is it? First Peter chapter four, verses 12 through 16 say this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you are suffering, or to the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, then you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame, but is to glorify God in this name. Is this a part of your understanding of the Christian life? Or are you still under the illusion that Christ has been given to you so that you can have a life of comfort, ease, and prosperity? If that's what you believe about Jesus Christ, then you need to know that that sort of life is the exact opposite of what Christ promised his people. If your heart longs for ease and prosperity, then you need to understand that what you are longing for is something that Christ does not promise in the new covenant, which means that you are harboring covetousness, which means that you, your greed is creating an idol. Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 20 is fitting. The Lord says this, watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Does this passage describe the longing of your heart? Is this how you view retirement? If it is, then no, God's word to you is a fool. Psalm 14, verse one says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is why I say your greed is creating an idol. And though you may give lip service to the Lord, your heart is far from him. And I encourage you, if this is you, repent now, repent right now. Because you do not know that this very night your soul may be required of you. 
First John chapter two, verses 15 through 17 tell us, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. In the midst of trials, in the midst of temptations, and even in the midst of good times, the tempter will have his opportunity to tempt you just as he had with the Thessalonians to walk away from the faith that you thought you had. When the pressure comes, it's game on. And the pressure comes, like First Peter told us, for our testing how you respond to trials, how you respond to temptations, how you respond to prosperity and blessing, because that is true. It does happen in the Christian life, but how you respond to it matters. And it tells you what the contents of your heart actually are. And so the apostle Paul's concern is the faith of these believers. My concern your leadership's concern is your faith. We want you to be vigilant. We want you to be disciplined in the faith by the power of the spirit of God that dwells in you. We want you to be rooted and planted in your convictions that are based on what the word of God actually says. And if we depend on the Lord for strength to do these things, And if you depend on the Lord for the strength to do these things, then our labor is not in vain and we rejoice in the Lord for his grace towards us. And for this to happen, you must become like the soldier who does not entangle himself in the civilian affairs, but who is battle ready. You must be like the willing and obedient child who follows the father's wise instructions without reservation. These things must happen because your enemy, Satan, roams the earth like a lion seeking someone to devour. Be advised, but also be encouraged. For again, I'll say it, 1 John chapter 5. You are from God, little children, and have overcome the children of the devil. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The pastor longs for his people to grow up in their faith. The tempter has ample opportunity throughout your life to disrupt that faith. Build your life on faith that is based upon the rock of the word of God and not on sand. And remember, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord, for your grace towards us. We thank you, Lord, for your magnificent provision of strength through your word and through the fellowship of one another. We thank you, Lord, that your family enjoys a quality of relationship that is not available to those outside of the new covenant. God, I pray, Lord, that we would take advantage of that. I pray, Lord, that this body would serve one another continually and excel still more in doing it. And God, I pray, Lord, that by our witness, by our very lives and words, God, that the outside world would see this body of believers and that when they see them, they would see Jesus. God, we thank you for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.